from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, entirely Kyone Wolf, not enhanced by any artificial means. I don't currently have any hearing aids or cochlear implants, no pacemaker needed for my heart, and currently I'm not wired with a deep brain stimulator, like people who have Parkinson's, epilepsy, or OCD. The word cyborg dates back to the 1960s. It describes a person whose physiological functions are enhanced by biochemical or electrical modifications. So in that sense, everybody with a cochlear implant, pacemaker, or deep brain stimulator is a cyborg. At the same time, in pop culture, the word cyborg sometimes has a bad reputation. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you... Robocop. If people are embedded with technology, then maybe that technology will dehumanize them. At least that's the impression that characters like Robocop and Darth Vader give off. But today... You're going to meet two people who flip that narrative on its head. They use technology to not only enhance their senses, but to experience and share the art that these expanded senses can create. Moon Rivas and Neil Harbison are co-founders of the Cyborg Foundation and the Trans Species Society. They would love to see more human beings use technology to expand themselves, not only so they can sense their worlds more deliberately, but to also connect creatively in new ways. Moon, a choreographer, is best known for having sensors implanted into her feet that vibrate every time an earthquake of at least 1.0 on the Richter scale goes off. We'll meet her in a little bit and hear how she incorporated these sensations not only into her daily life, but into her dancing. But let's start off with Neil Harbison. Born colorblind, he became the first person in the world to have an antenna implanted in his skull. Imagine a long, silver, flexible wire about the width of a pencil sprouting from the base of his skull and bending over the top of his head. This antenna interprets colors, including UV and infrared, into vibrations. He can hear color. Here he is on the BBC back in 2014, sitting in front of a canvas of differently colored dots of paint on a musical scale. So to me, these paints are sounds. I can hear each color and I can actually also put them on a, on a score. Like red is F, G is yellow, green is A, turquoise is B, blue is C, violet D, and pink is E. I asked Neil to talk about how this idea for the antenna came to him. It's something that I created when I was studying art as an art project. I was always interested in color because I don't see color. And then I was interested in Isaac Newton's theory of color and sound, where he related colors to sound. And from this, it started a project to create a system that would allow me to compose music with color or to hear color with Adam Montandon, a student from Plymouth University. And then this project became a body part. It became part of my life in the end. So when you're looking at me over Zoom, what are you sensing? Like, what, what are you hearing? What, what, is that, what is that like for you? So if I point at you, because the antenna can point anywhere, it doesn't nece- I don't necessarily need to be sensing the colors that I'm looking at. I can be sensing the colors behind or beside, depending on where the antenna is pointing. So 
when I look at you with my eyes, I see you in grayscale because I see in grayscale. I have achromatism. It's a type of total color blindness. And then when I point at you, at you with the antenna, I hear the vibrations of your colors because colors create the vibration, a light frequency. This light frequency enters the antenna and then it creates a vibration inside my skull because there's a piece of a small chip in my head that vibrates depending on the light that reaches the, the antenna. So each color vibrates differently, which creates different musical notes in my head. And then I can relate colors to different sounds, different notes. How do I sound? So you sound F sharp. It's low frequencies. It's between F and F sharp. And if I get close, uh, your eyes, if you get closer, then I could hear your eyes. I think they're higher pitch, like in the middle spectrum. So yeah, you have different microtones, basically, that go from F to F sharp, and then some, a little bit of A as well. When you started wearing this, how did you change? Because I think about, you know, the senses that I'm used to, that I've been used to for 42 years. All of a sudden, you are getting all these new inputs visually and sonically, vibrationally, how did you change once you started using this for a while? Well, at the beginning, it was chaotic. So it wasn't a sudden awareness of reality. It was a sudden chaos because uh, color is everywhere. So wherever I would look, I would feel vibrations and hear different microtones. And it was chaotic and confusing. But the constant stimuli input made my brain slowly convert these chaos into information and afterwards into feelings as well. So it was a slow process from chaos to logic, information, and afterwards to sensing and to feeling uh, the color until I, I was able to have favorite colors and to distinguish all the colors through sound, including invisible ones. Because the good thing is that the antenna picks up infrareds and ultraviolets. So it goes beyond human eyes. What's your favorite color to hear? Infrared. Why? Because others don't see it. So I, I like this because now it's them or you who are colorblind. So I like infrared for this reason. And then because also infrared, it's in unusual places and it allows me to also know if um, alarms are on or off in a shop or a bank. So I can tell if Movement detectors are on because I sense infrareds. It gives me some interesting information, infrared. Also, it travels differently. Tra can travel far. So if your antenna were used, were in the wrong hands, people could use it for nefarious purposes. Yes. What's a color that is not your favorite to hear or experience? Ultraviolet. Why? It's also invisible because it's high pitch and it's dangerous. It's a color that can go through your skin. It doesn't bounce. So it can actually kill you. It's a color that we should avoid. Um, and it's not very pleasant to hear. So when you go outside and it's a sunny day, then you're, it's, is it always present? Sometimes it is, but it needs to be the dominant. And you need to aim it right at it, right? Well, it can be anywhere. It can, sometimes it can be in a field of flowers and the dominant, um, there's a lot of ultraviolet there. Are you wearing this all the time? I'm not wearing it. I have it. 
it's a it's an organ it's a body part it's not removable it, i would need to have surgery to remove it and how long have you had it since march 22nd 2004 so it will be the 20th anniversary next year i'm planning a big party so how would you say you're different the you now than the day before the the device was implanted what has changed i think is my relationship with technology it's no longer something else it's me so to feel that technology is part of my identity is the biggest change more than sensing color it's the fact that i feel that i am technology i don't feel that i'm wearing i don't feel that i'm using technology i feel that i am technology and this feeling is something that was not planned uh, my aim was to sense color and to create art through color but this project changed my identity it's a profound change that i i don't know even if i if i know how to explain it through words um but to feel that this antenna is like a nose or an ear or that hearing color is like smelling or tasting is something no one has experienced you can experience losing a sense but gaining a, a new sense or gaining a new body part there's no history about this and it's difficult to share with other people i think a lot of people when they consider implants that would accentuate or change our perception affect our perception of the world around us i think a lot of people unsurprisingly recoil and go, okay, there's something not right about that. I'm a human. I want to stay a human. I'm going to just stop it right there. That is beyond the pale, too weird. What do you say to those people? Well, I just listen to them and I, I accept this way of life. It's a, it's a life decision. In my case, I don't feel that I'm changing reality. I, I think that I'm revealing reality. It's different. I'm not interested in creating some kind of virtual reality or a reality created from imagination. I'm interested in sensing things that are in front of me, but that we can't sense as humans. Like ultraviolets are in front of you, infrareds are in front of you, but you as a human cannot sense this. But through the technology, you could sense it. And there's many more things that we could sense that are in front of us, that we could sense them by merging with technology. And this would allow us to experience reality through new layers. Um, so it's a way of rediscovering the planet uh, or exploring reality. So I don't see it as, as something that separates me from reality, but I see it as the opposite. Yeah, I think about how in ways we have allowed technology to change our or affect or expand our perception, right? With even just glasses. <laughs> it seems like most people on the planet have some sort of vision impairment um, and we've got solutions for that for the most part. But I feel like there is almost this this line in the sand that a lot of people feel about enhancing or changing the body to perceive other things that are around us. Almost like, hey, if we if we should be perceiving these things, we would. But because we don't, we shouldn't. Is that an objection or sort of a fear or a feeling that sometimes people talk about around you? Yeah, but I don't think they've thought it in a profound way. Like, yeah. Most people want to see at night, uh, but they haven't solved the problem. They still don't have night vision. They've created light bulbs. So 
this is not the solution. To create artificial light is not the solution. People want to see at night. Uh, so we should change ourselves, not the planet. Uh, so we've created wrong solutions. Uh, cities should, should be dark at night. We shouldn't be creating so much light at night. I mean, we should be able to see. Or if we want to control our own temperature, we should not use heaters or air conditionings. We should try to find a way to control our own temperature. So we should design ourselves, basically, not design the planet. And I think most people don't think about this when when they argue that we shouldn't do what we are doing. So. So that makes me want to know when you picture a world of cyborgs, of people who've found and developed and incorporated devices so that they enhance themselves so that the world around them doesn't have to bend to their whim. How is that world different? I don't know, 50 years from now, if it'll even take that long? What do you think about the, the big best case scenario future? Um, I see humans that have new organs and new senses that allow them to adapt better to the planet. And it will be a slow transition. We will decide to change ourselves. Um, just when we stop fearing this union between technology and body, it will start happening. And now this fear of technology, I think, is is not as big as it was in the 20th century. Uh, science fiction in the 20th century was portraying this union between humans and machines as something really terrible. Uh, whereas now reality is showing us that it doesn't need to be like this. I wonder if some of the fear is the look of it, right? Like you and I have been talking for a little while now, and I still see it, like it's still prominent to me, but I bet for the people that you love and that you hang out with all the time, they don't even see this thing that is right in front of your forehead um, coming out from the back of your head. What do you think about the idea that some people just don't want to look like that? The organs can be designed by yourself. So I decided to have an antenna, but I could have sensed color through any other organ. First, actually, I thought of having a third eye implanted in my forehead, but then I thought this would limit my color perception to just what I have in front. And I didn't want this. I wanted color to be an independent sense. So antennas allow you to perceive 360 degrees without having to move your head. Um, so that shouldn't be a problem because you can design the organ yourself, especially with 3D printers. You can easily decide how and where you want to have the organ. How does the antenna stay charged? So it charges through induction. So I need electricity. This is something that I also want to change because uh, I don't want to depend on external energy. The aim would be to have a turbine in the blood vessel that would continuously charge the antenna. There have been some tests with this, but there's problems with clotting. So it's not perfect. So, But I think it will be perfect. Uh, at some point, and then I will be able to use my own blood circulation to charge the antenna. So if you could use that technology to charge one device inside you, then that could charge any device inside you. That's everything. That Would, that, would having the turbine technology in the bloodstream be at least one of the game-changing developments to get us to be more cyborgish? Yes, yes. One of the main issues is is this. The, the battery, the power. 
there will be a point when becoming a cyborg will not depend on electricity or, or I mean external electricity. We will be able to charge our own organs with our own energy, either with blood circulation or kinetic energy or any other type of energy created by our own body. And our vehicles. Anything, yeah. Depends how, how much energy you can create. Because we are constantly creating energy that is lost. Right, even in our sleep. Exactly, especially in our sleep. In, when we sleep, our brain is creating a lot of energy that is wasted. So I can't imagine that any sort of fuel industry would be thrilled about this idea. Oh, yes. They don't like this. That's why there's, no, there's not much research on this. That would be the end of many, many things, yes. That was Neil Harbison. The antenna implanted in his skull translates color into sound. When we get back. Three policemen tried to pull it out because they thought I was filming them. But you need serious surgery in order to remove the antenna. Plus, how one woman understood the planet differently after getting implants in her feet that would vibrate whenever there was an earthquake. I kind of imagine the seismic activity a bit like the Earth breathing. No, and when they, she takes a, a big breath, there's a big earthquake. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. I hear colors running through my mind. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today we're meeting two self-described cyborgs. Both have implants that not only enhance their senses, but also bring a new kind of art into our world. In a little bit, you'll meet a choreographer who had sensors implanted into her feet so she could feel earthquakes. She's incorporated those sensations into her performances. But let's get back to Neil Harbison. He was born colorblind, and since 2004, he's had an antenna implanted into his skull that translates color into sound. He can hear color. So in the nearly 20 years that he's had this antenna, what kind of reactions has he gotten? And how have those reactions changed over the years? It's part of my life now, uh, having to talk to strangers and then also hear their opinion about my life or my body or my... So it's part of it. And it's uh, interesting for me as well to see how this social reaction is changing and has changed in 20 years. 
because most people thought it was a light in 2004, a reading light. 2005, a microphone. 2006, a uh, seven, a uh, hands-free telephone. 2009, a uh, GoPro cam. People thought I was filming them. 2012, um, they thought I was streaming the streets, like for, for Google Street View. 2014, I think people thought it was something to do with Google Glass. Then it was uh, selfie sticks. People, children thought it was selfie stick. Then people shout uh, Pokemon in the streets in 2016. People connect the antenna with whatever is happening at the moment. Or also in different countries, the reaction is a bit different. So it's a, a whole social experiment as well. It also makes me think about how pregnant women uh, and especially black women are often touched without permission. Uh, <laughs> is, does that happen to you? Yes, it's usually drunk women. <laughs> no one else really does it. <laughs> Why do you think that is? In the situation, they are drunk and they find it funny and then they touch the other. It's It's always... It's always the same. It's, it's, and then babies as well. Well, that's fair. I mean, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also it happened in 2011. Three policemen tried to pull it out because they thought I was filming them. Oh, my God. Tell me about that. It was um, a situation in Barcelona. It was a demonstration. And then I was in the demonstration. And then three policemen came and they said, stop filming and remove this camera uh, from the head. And then I said, it's not filming, it's not a camera. And then they said, remove it, and they pulled. And then they broke the tip of it. And that's the only time in all these 20 years that I've had a physical aggression, basically. I'm so relieved to hear that you weren't hurt uh, more physically. That would have, if, if, if they had, ugh, I don't even like to ask you this, but if they had somehow pulled it out of your head, I mean, what would have happened? Would you have been okay? Like, would you bled a lot? I mean, how would you, would you be able to put it back in? You can't remove the antenna, even if you pull it very hard, because it's part of my skeleton. So if this was implanted inside my skin, then it would be a, a huge problem, because then they would have, I don't know what it would have happened, but it's in the bone, so it's not possible. They, you, you need serious surgery drilling the bone in order to remove the antenna so i feel safe because even if someone pulls the antenna it won't hurt it will they will just move my head basically okay so how did the person who installed it know how to install it and i'm sure this is a three hour long conversation but is there a way to talk about the installation process and who did it and how they knew this has never been done before unless i'm wrong no they didn't know and we didn't know no one knew uh, i mean i told them where i wanted it then we made an um, x-ray to see how this zone was and they said yes and then well the doctor said he thought it was it would last 45 minutes but it lasted almost 5 hours so because it was it was difficult to drill and to I also bled a lot, like bleeding. I was awake. I only had local anesthetics and it felt long. I mean, it was facing down. We had to use a yoga chair 
like a, a massage, a massage chair. Chair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the five hours, when you lifted your head, finally, you probably had that stupid red <laughs> mark on your face for a long time, like all day. Exactly. How do you know? Because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that's what I was most worried about. <laughs> Vanity. <laughs> I think, will this go? Because it, it <laughs> Is was... this, Are these lines permanent too? <laughs> Well, wait a minute. So we did a show a while back about um, body integrity dysphoria, where people um, have four healthy limbs, but feel as though one of them is wrong. And so they pursue surgery to get an amputation. And so I interviewed this guy who got an amputation a long time ago. And we, when it came to the, the conversation about the surgery, um, he wouldn't even reveal what country he went to to protect this surgeon because it's so controversial. Ethically, it's this gray area of it's a healthy limb, but it's causing pain to the person who has it. And so a lot of doctors don't do it, blah, blah, blah. With the person who did the surgery for you, were there similar concerns? Yeah, because any type of new surgery needs to be accepted by a bioethical committee. Well, I did go to a bioethical committee. I presented the surgery and they didn't uh, prove it. So they said it, said it was not ethical because it goes beyond human perception because it's not a pre-existing body part and because uh, it would probably damage the hospital's reputation if someone came out with an antenna. So they said no. And then I found this doctor who said, I will do it, but anonymously, because if if uh, his name is revealed, then he would be in trouble. And you probably had to sign some paperwork that said if something went terribly wrong, he would not be liable. Yeah, I signed that I was fully responsible of whatever happened there. When it first switched on after surgery, can you talk about that moment? There are several things that are strange. It's like an electronic resonance in the body. Even when I clicked with my teeth, it would have an electronic echo. The new sense, which is then suddenly coming from inside, not outside. And then the new feeling that you have a new body part is, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, um, yeah, you have a new body part, basically. It's, um, you touch the antenna, it feels that someone is touching you. Because when someone touches the antenna, I feel that I'm being touched. Here's what I picture when I imagine you looking at yourself in the mirror in the clinic right after the surgery for the first time and seeing this vision come true. I imagine you having the most biggest smile on your face and an enormous sense of relief. Am I right? Yeah, I cried as well of emotion. (laughs) How long did it take for you to kind of get used to it and forget it's there and the sensations to start integrating into your whole life. How long did that take? After five months, it all became normal to me, but not when I went out in the street because there's all this social reaction that is still happening now, that is still people see there's something strange, whereas, yeah, so it's different. When I go out in the street, sometimes I'm reminded that maybe it is not uh, normal. So... But to me, it became normal after five months. In one way, that that sounds about right for me as somebody who's not been through or experienced what you've experienced. But also, I think about, you know, you went from seeing in grayscale 
to seeing and experiencing these colors so i mean all the freaking time so like is there not i mean it's been a long time now it's been 20 years almost but do you ever kind of want to turn it off no i can move it somewhere else so if there's like a lot of color in front of me i simply move the antenna somewhere else and i can continue looking what i'm looking so pointing it up or down is usually less noisy because there's less color usually uh, and I could also cover it with my hand if it's really terrible. But it, it rarely happens. At the beginning, maybe it was overwhelming, but I, I managed to get used to it until the brain completely got used to the constant input. Is there anything you would change about this device? If you could wave a magic wand that is bendy. Uh, if you could change anything about this device, what would you change? Or is it freaking perfect? I think the surgery, I would have done it a bit higher. Why? Because uh, it's in the part of the body that there's still a lot of movement. Like when you move your head, the skin moves and this creates friction and it's it's not good for implants to have friction around it. Also, when I lie down, it would be better if it would be a bit higher. So hopefully you are a side sleeper? Yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. If I were able to jump into your body and experience what you're experiencing, which I know is is quite an ask, because I, I don't know what it's like to grow up colorblind, and I'm not you, but what do you think would surprise me most about the experience you're having if I were able to leap into your body? Maybe that color is alive, that it keeps changing, that it's not constant, like not permanent. like. You see an object that is red, for example, and you will always say it's red, even if you're not seeing that it's red. But the fact that colors are constantly depending on the light, not on the actual object, is something that you would probably be more aware if you kept sensing color. Because I decided that the antenna should have no white balance. Uh, so it never tells you what color it is. It simply gives you the vibration of the color. So then you're much more conscious that color keeps changing. Um, it's never permanent. Like uh, nothing is always in the same color because it depends on light and light can change a lot. Which is kind of beautiful when you think about, you know, we cling to that which we want to be permanent. And by clinging to an idea of, a, of something being permanent, we kill it. We strangle it. And so the idea of recognizing that even color changes based on the time of day, based on the reflection of that which is around it, it's kind of a beautiful metaphor for how we should all recognize the ever-present flowing of existence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of red, I'm going to ask you to talk about the audacious red, at least as I'm going to show it to you through my Zoom camera on my Dell laptop at 10.45 in the morning in Hartford, Connecticut, seen through the airwaves where you are. So when I hold this logo up, this audacious logo up, what are you hearing? There's uh, different shades of F, and it's, that's different shades of red, but it's different shades of, different microtones of F, very profound sound. It's um, a low F. And you said that my face had F in it. You have a bit of F and a bit of F sharp, yeah. So I'm related yeah, to my sound... show's <laughs> logo. 
exactly, yeah. Can I show you the Connecticut public blue? Yeah. Yeah, this is C, almost pure C. Very clear note. It doesn't have microtones. This one is pure C. Well, Neil Harvison, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you. After the break, when a choreographer had sensors implanted into her feet so she could feel earthquakes, how did the rest of her body react? It's like I added a new beat inside my body. No, apart from having my heartbeat, I had the earth beat. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Imagine an earthquake. Now imagine feeling that earthquake in the form of a vibrating sensor in your feet. Now imagine a bigger earthquake. Which gives off an even bigger buzz. Moon Ribas felt every earthquake above 1.0 on the Richter scale, wherever and whenever it happened on the planet, for seven years. As the co-founder of the Cyborg Foundation and the Trans Species Society, doing this made perfect sense. But it also made perfect sense for her work as a choreographer and dancer. Here's how it all began. I wanted to have a new sense that uh, allowed me to perceive movement in a deeper way. And I did other projects about, for example, the speed of the people walking in front of me or uh, feeling what I had behind my body. But all these new senses that I be, that I was exploring, it was also always related to movement uh, of other people. And I actually remember talking, having a conversation with Neil in our studio and I was like, it doesn't like fulfill me that much. I wanted to have a sense and new sense of movement that it doesn't relate to other people. I mean, movement is not something that belongs just to humans. There are many things that move. And then I had this image, okay, if I would be alone in the planet, how could I perceive movement? And I realized that actually the planet itself, it constantly moves, not only rotates by itself or around the sun, but it shades constantly through seismic activity. And this idea just really fulfilled me. I was like, wow, would it be possible to be united to this huge and natural movement that, that actually most of the time is imperceptible, but it's massive uh, to my body to have this union, not to one body, to this huge and natural movement, maybe the most primitive movement that exists. Okay, so it's one thing to have this idea and it's another thing to do it. Will you talk about how... How did these sensors get developed and then surgically implanted? 
So first uh, you have the idea and then you, you find if the technology exists and then the seismic data goes online in real time. So that was easy because seismographs are all spread all around the planet. And then it's like, how can I perceive this in my body? And I thought through vibrations would be the most natural thing. The most, I didn't think so much where to put it. So I just put it like, you know, like a watch. But then it was quite big and this was annoying to eat. So I put it up and up uh, until it was uh, above my elbow. Because also it felt like away from my vital organs, you no, know, like on the arms. And I did it that for a while. I even, I even found the way of implanting and I I, I did a, a collaboration with a body hacker and they put me implants on, uh, above my elbow. And then when I was experiencing that for a while, I, I thought, well, that it doesn't make sense to feel earthquakes on my arms. No, if humans would have this new sense, we would have it in on the feet, which is the part of the body that touches the floor. And then I I did a transplant, <laughs> what we call it, and then I moved the implants from my arms to on top of my feet. When an earthquake would happen anywhere in the world, what would you feel? I feel a very small vibration, like really subtle, like. <laughs> no matter the size of the earthquake? No, it matters. Like it's it's bigger the vibration when there's a bigger earthquake. So what I had, uh, uh, it's like implants in my feet that were connected to online seismographs. And whenever there was some seismic activity on the planet, I would feel a vibration inside the body. And depending on the intensity of the earthquake, the vibration I would feel would be stronger or less strong. So at the beginning... The beginning it's really intense because I mean I'm from Barcelona, so my relation to earthquakes was like really distant and like something that happened every now and then, like non-related at all. And then I realized that Earth is constantly moving. And how little I knew about it. I kind of imagine the seismic activity a bit like the Earth breathing. No, and when the she takes a a big breath, there's a big earthquake. This came, uh, yeah, this imaginary came later, no? At the beginning, yeah, exactly. I was very distracted. I thought that every big vibration, something terrible would happen. And then I realized that there's many, many big earthquakes and it's really red or something bad happens. And after a while of feeling all these vibrations, uh, a way that I have to describe it, it's like I added a new bit inside my body. No, apart from having my heartbeat, I had the earth beat, what I called, uh, having its own rhythm. So I, in a way, creating this new sense, it was adding this, this new beat. So it's been 10 years that you've had it in your feet now. I, I, and you touch on this a little bit, but how does this change you as a person being so in touch with the breathing and body that is the planet earth that we're all on also you're sensing something i'm not and so we're different in a way now right i'd love to hear your thoughts on that the feeling is so much more profound no my idea of the earth has changed completely i mean also i realize how disconnected we are, no? I mean, earthquakes have always existed and through seismic activity i feel like earth is 
showing us uh, that it is also a living organism that evolves and moves constantly and makes me think, how is it possible that uh, big cities exist? How is it possible that we build cities like we have done it in a, in a place that is constantly moving? Like, would animals have done this? No? Like, uh, how we need to readapt to our own planet. We live in a moving planet. And yeah, sometimes a cyborg guard, no, we say that it can be a bit lonely too. It's fulfilling because especially when I perform, no, it's a bit like meditating. I, I, I have this piece, dance piece, that it's a durational piece, that it can last 10 minutes, it can last hours. Uh, I usually do it in museums. And it's inv an invitation to the audience just to listen to the earth for, for a while. So what I do, I stand still. And whenever there's an earthquake, I move according to the intensity of the earthquake. So it's a bit like a duet between the earth and myself. Actually, earth is the choreographer of the piece. I mean, I'm just an interpreter. So I move whenever she moves. So if there are no earthquakes, there will be no dance. No, lots of festivals are worried about this, but Earth moves a lot. I, tell you, I, I always end up moving. So you had these implants in your feet for seven years. Why did you decide to take them out? And did you miss them? <laughs> yeah, it was actually it was. Um, uh, so I was so much more scared to take them out than to put them in. And I thought everything would change. And it was so weird because nothing changed for even days and months. I could still feel the vibrations in my body because I had it for so long. So I had actually the phantom effect. So I was a phantom cyborg for a while. <laughs> the world's first phantom cyborg. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I missed it. I missed having, having something. And then with my partner, Kim, Kim Hirong, he's also an artist. So we wanted, we actually, we met to create something together and we wanted to share a sense because as I told you, cyborg art can feel sometimes very lonely. And it's like, well, maybe we should share a sense and then create a performance about uh, our experience. And in, in the meantime, uh, we got pregnant. So we created the pregnancy sense. Uh, <laughs> And this consisted uh, that I, because I, yeah, I got pregnant, so I had a, a belt around my belly with an ultrasound sensor connected to an interface and that to a phone. And then Kim, my partner in the, in the, other, uh, in the other hand, he had a, a bone conducted headphone connected to his phone. And with this, he could literally call our baby. <laughs> and with this call, he could hear the fluids of the amniotic sac, uh, the flux the, of the blood and his heartbeat. At the, at the beginning, it was very watery, but when he was growing, it was, the heartbeat was more clear. Yeah, we said that actually he was digitally pregnant and I was biologically pregnant. So we all shared the pregnancy, but in different methods. And we did actually what we what we call cyborg family concerts, because actually we plugged this belt into some loudspeakers. Uh, so audience could hear the heartbeat of our baby and we modify it electronically. And we also add our own heartbeats. Uh, and we also made music with using all the family's heartbeats <laughs> as a rhythm. Uh, so using our bodies to, to create music. Uh, so uh, our our son was, was a DJ very early <laughs> in, 
in our belly. <laughs> See, what I'm hearing from you is that the work with implants and technology that you're using with your body is compassion-based and connection-based. <laughs> and so when I think about, you know, some people are so, you know, the idea of being a cyborg or using more technology than we already do, because we certainly already use technology in our bodies, but using more gives some people some pause and some fear. What would you say to those who have fear about using more intimate technology like this? I understand them because actually when we were teenagers, uh, Neil and I were a bit like this. We we, we had the phase that we were actually anti-technology too, <laughs> because we I thought that it was very distant and cold. It always for me was very functional. So I don't like technology just per se. Like I I don't have the latest phone or I don't have like just gadgets. I mean it's something personal. No, I wasn't the the girl who played video games. I don't like just technology. But I la I think we find really fascinating that technology can help us to to perceive reality in a deeper way. And this is when I find it uh, interesting. Maybe it's something very personal, I guess. How and like, yeah, use technology as a as a medium to perceive. I found this very, very exciting. Actually, we define cyborg art like this, no? Designing your own perception of reality by creating new senses and new organs. Because the reality you perceive is like this because your senses and organs allows you to perceive it like this. But exactly now if my dog enters the room and a bee, the way we all three perceive that room is completely different because of our senses and organs. And this is exciting, no? The room is the same, but the way you perceive it, it's different. Uh, so we can re-explore our own planet by creating these new senses. So what's next for this effort, this art, this cyborg work? And if you could like wave a magic wand and have all the money you need to do the next big, meaningful implant to you, what would that be? Actually, I'm creating a, a performance that it's called Underland. And we're talking about human relation with the Underland. And it will be an outside performance uh, during nighttime. Uh, it allows like 50 people in the audience and all of them will have uh, frontal light and also a cybernetic wristband it will be great every time there's an earthquake somewhere in the in real time so actually during the performance earth will interrupt us constantly with the with the vibrations and it's an invitation also to look a bit under under our feet what we have under and then also it's it's an invitation to listen to the earth no so the last scene we want like no humans in the in the scene and just let the the earth talk through some seismic percussion that we are preparing also. <laughs> so these sensors are connected to an online seismograph that's always sensing where on the planet there are earthquakes. And most of them are, are little tiny ones, right? But of course, now and then there are just mind-bogglingly violent, huge nine point whatever on the Richter scale. Can you talk about when you sensed one of those big ones? Actually, there are many big ones that sometimes happens in the middle of the ocean that nothing bad happens. But I remember the first one, 
that I had the implants, it was in in Nepal. It was a really big one. It was really, really negative. That, that's the problem with uh, seismic activity, you know, having this new sense that um, sometimes I found it like really fulfilling, but then there's also this dark side. It feels like guilty. I remember like I felt like really bad and felt like, so there's been uh, moments during feeling these that I'm uh, that I've been like, no, I, I think I should drop it. I don't want to feel it because it's it feels like I'm promoting something that it, that it's bad. But in a way, I, when I think about this, it, like it's again, no, it's not the earthquake itself. It's like the cities that humans build, ignoring that our planet moves. But when people die and saying this, it's it feels no no right. If you had to get these reimplanted for whatever reason, how would you feel about that? Wow, no one ever asked me that. Um, I think I would like it. I I really like this project. I mean, I'm still managing finding ways to keep performing, waiting for earthquakes. I do seismic scores all the time related to the seismic activity. I mean, this is the project that defines me for now as an artist. So maybe I could do it, actually. <laughs> we'll talk again. <laughs> well, Moon Rivas, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It has been really, really nice. We'll have photos of Neil and Moon that you definitely want to see and links to more of their work at ctpublic.org audacious. This show is always so very lovingly produced by Jessica Sever and Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find the episode I mentioned about people who have body integrity dysphoria at ctpublic.org. And that's where you can also find other episodes like the one featuring a man who was blind since birth, who learned how to get around, including riding a bike, by echolocating. And you'll also find an episode we did with a man who's a candidate to become the world's first body transplant recipient, or head transplant recipient. We're not sure quite how to articulate that one. They are all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your thoughts on Facebook and Instagram at Kion Wolf, or you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.